It's the most anticipated event of the year. Now, depending on what you're into, that could be a number of different things. If you're into college basketball, the most anticipated event of the year starts at about 5 o'clock this evening with the NCAA tournament selection show. I know that not because I am into college basketball, but because I already set it up to record for my wife, who is. (laughs) Go Illinois (laughs) on her behalf. If you're into movies, maybe the most anticipated event of the year is the Oscars. I'm not even sure when that is. Is it tonight or something? I I know it's coming up soon, but I really don't care enough. Or maybe, I don't know, you're red-blooded American. What really gets your blood pumping, pumping? You're looking forward to truck month. With great savings on this year's newest models. Uh, Not a whole lot of love for truck month in here. I guess you all are Toyota-thon people. Sorry my family grew up. We were the orthodox uh, happy Honda days. No, it's... uh, They're always like, oh, it's the most anticipated event of the year. It's like, calm down, advertising people. It's just a new label on the laundry detergent. Nobody's anticipating that. We don't care. But sometimes we have been waiting. Sometimes you are looking forward to that big brown truck leaving a box on your doorstep. Maybe you're looking forward to graduation, vacation, retirement. We do have those events that we anticipate. That we're looking forward to. We're we're, we're expecting when it arrives, it'll be a time of great enjoyment. And when we flip the page into the New Testament... The people of God have been waiting, waiting, and waiting, and waiting. After the exile and the rebuilding of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem, the Jews had been living in what the Chinese would call interesting times. They didn't have their own nation. They'd been ruled over by empire after empire. They were currently ruled over by Rome. And there was a strong sense of anticipation. They knew that God wasn't done with them. They knew God was still working. They knew the Messiah was yet to come, and it felt like he was close. They could almost taste it. Somehow, someway, they knew this promise from God of this Messiah that they've been waiting for, for generation upon generation, he was close. And as we open the New Testament, the first gospel we come to is the gospel of Matthew. Now all four gospels look at the life of Jesus, but each one has its own point of view. Each portrait of Christ that we see in each gospel, it's from a slightly different angle. Yes, they're all based in fact. Yes, they all teach us about Jesus. But just as different people may know you differently, these different gospel authors give us slightly different pictures of Jesus. Not different in the sense that Matthew tells us something, that Mark tells us something that's opposite. But you put them all together and we have a much fuller picture of Christ. 
But when we examine each gospel by itself as an individual gospel, we see that each one is setting forth Jesus in a slightly different light. Matthew is bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament. He shows Jesus to us as the Messiah God has promised, the coming king the Jews had been waiting for. Maybe not the king they thought they were getting, but a king above and beyond what they had hoped for. Matthew is the Jewish gospel, has the strongest Jewish flavor, quoting the Old Testament the most. Matthew himself was one of the twelve disciples. A former tax collector. And I know we're in tax season, and this is not anybody's favorite season. But if you think you don't like the IRS, oh, you've got nothing on first century Jews. I mean, yeah, none of us really enjoy paying taxes. As a minister, I have to pay quarterlies myself. You know, nobody takes it out of my check. I've got to physically cut the check to the IRS Every quarter. I may be petty enough that I bought a bunch of Disney villain stamps specifically for this purpose. Running out of them, I'm going to have to find something else to use to send. You know, I don't get to send great messages, but I'll do what I can. I'm an American. Bullying the government is my birthright, you know, but... (laughs) I mean, if you think we don't like paying taxes, they, they were much more so because when they paid taxes, they weren't paying it to a government that they got to vote for. Rome is a distant city. They saw their money leaving, not doing any good for them. And the tax collectors themselves, well, they weren't paying income taxes. Usually their taxes were like taxes on goods as you'd move them to market. The tax collectors would have booths and you'd have to stop there and they'd tax you. And sometimes they'd tax you a little extra. I mean, imagine if in a tax audit, the IRS agent was told, anything extra you get out of these folks, you get to keep. So you can see why they wouldn't be fond of these tax collectors working for the hated Romans. They would have seen Matthew as a turncoat, a collaborator. Yet he followed Jesus and he wrote this gospel, showing Jesus to be the king, the Messiah, the one who is promised by God from the dawn of history. And throughout this gospel, we see Jesus, the king of all creation. I'll admit, when I was starting to work on these gospel sermons, I thought, man, how do you pick out just a few passages from the gospels? I could easily just get up here and read the whole thing. I went with a few different passages that point specifically at Jesus being king. And from the very beginning, we see this sense of expectation, this knowledge that the king is coming. They knew it right even from his birth. In Matthew chapter 2, we see it. And I'll tell you, it's weird reading this passage in March. We're used to reading Christmas passages in December. And when I'm reading stuff about the birth of Christ, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, when am I going to start mowing the lawn? That's odd. But even from the birth of Christ, he's king. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Probably remember this passage, the beginning of the wise men visiting Jesus, bearing gifts, starting that uh, tradition that we carry forth to this day. And you also remember Herod's attempt to remove this threat to his throne. Take note of what's happening here. The ones who are starting this chain of events are from elsewhere. They're not Jews. If you spend any time in the business world, you've learned what the definition of an expert is. An expert is someone from someplace else. Not somebody with great education, not somebody with great accomplishments, just somebody from literally anywhere else. Because we know our organization, we know how messed up it is, and we know anybody who'd have anything to do with this, quite honestly, can't be an expert. So we have to bring in outside consultants. This starts with the experts from somewhere else, probably the land of Persia, modern-day Iran. But it just says from the east, these magi were astrologers. You see, back then when they watched the skies, it wasn't just because they were interested in the planets. They thought that they would find heavenly omens that would give insight into events here on earth. And they were looking. And this is something, interestingly, that the Old Testament law did not allow. Divination. God wants us to look to him, not to... The heavens, not to chicken entrails, not to cards, not anything like that. He wants us to look to him. But God would sometimes use people who did not belong to him, people who did these practices, to underscore a point for his people. He does that here. They're looking in the heavens and they see something. Something that draws their attention to Israel. Something is about to happen. So they they say, oh, there's going to be a king of the Jews born. And well, if you're looking for a king of the Jews, where do you go? You go to the capital. You go to Jerusalem. Went to King Herod. Herod, there's one who has been born king of the Jews. Where is he? And Herod says, I'd kind of like to know myself, buddy. Because Herod had gotten his post through political maneuvering. He was something of a petty tyrant. That's why when it says he was, you know, he was troubled in all Jerusalem. With you ever have one of those bosses who's just not a good guy, and when he has a bad day, he spreads it around? Herod. Only Herod had troops and could kill people. Probably your boss didn't. They go to Jerusalem and they ask and King Herod gets his advisors and they knew the location. Oh, uh, the king of the Jews is going to be born. Where is he going to be born? They immediately come back with, oh, the Messiah is going to be born in Jerusalem. We've known this for hundreds, or not Jerusalem, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We've known this for hundreds of years. They're in Jerusalem, talking about Bethlehem, not that far away. We've known this, long time. 
These foreign astrologers, they knew what was happening. They came to see. They brought gifts for this new king. And they would put different pieces together, saw something strange and knew there is a new king of the Jews. And meanwhile, these advisors who knew where he was going to be born, they didn't really care. From the beginning, Jesus was known to be the Messiah, even from those who were not his people. From his birth, he was special. From the moment he drew his first breath, he was king. Well, this baby king grows into an adult, begins his ministry, goes throughout the land. He's performing miracles. He's teaching the people, and they start to see who he is by his actions. Next, we come to chapter 12, and Matthew makes a point here. As Jesus does things, as he heals people, Pharisees get a little miffed. You know, different people start becoming angry with Jesus because he doesn't fit into the little box they had for him. They didn't, he wasn't acting the way they thought a person should act. So it says they're kind of figuring out how to destroy him because he's becoming more popular. We can't allow this to happen. But then Matthew says this, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here's Jesus gaining popularity. People see what he's doing. They know he is different. He's teaching with an authority they've never heard before. He's doing things nobody else has ever done. But he starts telling his followers, don't tell them who I am. He doesn't need them starting something at this point. You see, there was a misconception about that Messiah. They thought the king of the Jews would be an earthly king. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to make them their own nation again. But Jesus said, no, that's really not what I'm here for. So at various points, his popularity is building and people are just waiting for him to give the word go. And Jesus pulls back because he's not quite ready for it yet. He's here on a mission, not the mission that they thought. The timing needs to be right. He doesn't want them launching a revolt in his name because they don't understand what the Messiah is there to do. You see, they're making that same same error that Herod made. Herod thought Jesus was going to be a political king. Going to sit on a throne, going to make everything all right, going to kick out Rome. But Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 42. This is who Messiah is supposed to be. This is what he's going to do. There's nothing in here about taking a throne away from Rome. Jesus is not an earthly leader, but he is 
Lord. He is the servant of God, bearing the spirit of God. But I tell you, for if Jesus would have decided he wanted an earthly throne, that would have been a major demotion. To go from Lord of all creation, King of all kings, to just being a mere earthly leader. Jesus did not come to change the political situation. He came to change our spiritual situation. He was the Jewish Messiah, but he was also the Messiah for more than just the Jews. Did you notice that in that passage from Isaiah? It mentions the Gentiles a couple of times. The Bible normally doesn't repeat itself a ton in a short span of time. If it mentions something twice in a short span of time, that's a little clue. Pay some attention, buster. Twice in four verses, there's a mention of the Gentiles. And it's not easy for us to really understand that difference, that gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because the Jews, they were the people of God. They knew they were the people of God. They let everybody else know they were the people of God. Any of you ever been teacher's pet? A few of you? Yeah. See a few nods? Yeah. You're that person? Yeah. <laughs> it's nice being the favored one, isn't it? Little too nice, isn't it? Everybody else starts looking at each other. Eh, look at that goody two shoes, namby pamby, so and so. Show them a thing or two. You just start getting that little gap in between you. And the Jews, they were like, "We are the people of God. God, you know, we are gods." And then they went one step further. God is ours. We belong to Him, and He belongs to us. He's our territory. Buzz off, Gentiles. So there was a bit of a gap between the Jews and everybody else, but yet, even in the Jewish scriptures, there is a promise. A promise and a reminder. Yes, the Jews are God's people, but the Jews are not God's only people. You see, God has love for all humanity. It's not restricted by ethnic background, socioeconomic class, or any of that. God created man in his image, and he loves them all. The Jews had forgotten that. And Jesus, as the Messiah, had come to redeem all mankind, not just the biological descendants of Abraham. Yes, he's the Jewish Messiah. But he's not the Messiah for, just for Jews. He has a purpose, not the purpose that people thought. It's a purpose that is given by God. He's not any mere king. He's redeemer. He is Lord. You see, humans, we start thinking Jesus is just going to take over here. We start thinking, well, if we just get the right people in charge, it'll all be good. If we can kick out the Romans and get our own king again, things will be good. Jews had their own king for many years. They were their own nation. And bit by bit, their spiritual quality kept dropping. The people of God did not do a very good job of following God. And here God is trying to get across to them. It doesn't matter who is in the halls of power. 
What matters is who is in the hearts of people. Doesn't matter who runs the show, friends. What matters is whether we follow the God we claim. And so Jesus is here as Lord, and he is showing his power over every domain, not just his power over people. He is showing his power over everything. He calms the wind and waves. He's showing his power over nature. He heals diseases and infirmity, showing his power over our physical bodies. He cal- Even demons obey him. He's got power over the supernatural. With just a word, these things are happening. He looks at a paralyzed guy on a mat, get up, take your mat, and walk, and he does. Guy's possessed of a bunch of demons, and he looks at him and says, get out of him. And they do. And the storm, about ready to sink a ship, he gets up, yawn, says, quiet, and goes back to sleep. And even his disciples wonder, who is this guy? Jesus is not some pretender to an earthly throne. He has real authority, a real mission. This Jesus that Matthew is showing us has been foretold from the very beginning. God has worked through his people, the Jews, and now he is here. He is king. He is Lord. And the gospel builds to the crucifixion and resurrection. All four gospels build to the crucifixion and resurrection. It's vitally important to our faith, friends. Because Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. If he did not die, we are still in our sin. We got a problem. Because if we're still on our sin, we're those people who are calling upon the mountains. Fall on us, hide us from the wrath of God. We will have no relationship with him other than to be destroyed for our rebellion. But in his death, he became our sacrifice. But then he he comes back to life. In his resurrection, we find hope because we find out death isn't final. If death is final, what's the point to any of this? If when we die, that's the end, there's nothing more, why bother? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Been to a lot of funerals. I can never really say I looked in the casket and thought, oh, it's good looking. But no, in his resurrection, he shows there is life after death, that even death does not overpower the king of all creation. And in Matthew, this account of the crucifixion brings further miraculous events. When he's crucified, he's hanging on that cross pretty much all day. And in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 45, we're at about noon. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, about three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now I know what usually happens at noon, three o'clock, usually the brightest part of the day. There's darkness over the land. Miraculous events start to happen. Jesus cries out, that's in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. You're thinking, man, I'm glad he didn't ask me to read that. <laughs> you might wonder, how, why, why were they thinking he's calling for Elijah? Well, Elijah's name is not really Elijah. You see, we get our names for Bible characters, especially out of the Old Testament. It goes from Hebrew, often into Greek, and then through Latin, and then into English. And when you're doing that, you are torturing these poor words to the breaking point. And if we waterboard Elijah's name enough, that's where we end up. But even in Greek, his name is Elias. So you could see how a man who's, on a who's a nailed to a cross has been up there for hours. And the, hour and the day before that, he's been mistreated, abused, beaten within an inch of his life. Probably not really great diction at that point. A lie, a lie, and they hear that and they think, Elijah, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah's going to come. And some people read this and they think, God is turning his back on his son. I don't believe that. If you want to argue with me, go read Psalm 22 first and then come back and we'll talk. Psalm 22 is David writing about this. The events of the crucifixion right there hundreds of years before it ever happened. Jesus is trying to get people to pay attention. Look at what's going on. This has been foretold long before me. Before I ever was born. Back when David was still alive, God, has, God had his, his plans for the crucifixion. Jesus fulfilling every last one of them. And, and when he finally says, that's enough, and he dies, the temple curtain, very, very heavy. We're not talking a sheet. We're not talking like a blackout curtain. Folks, we're talking about something with massive weight. If you wanted to go after this thing, we're talking chainsaw. It is that heavy. By itself, torn top to bottom between the holy place and the temple and the most holy place. Most holy place has been empty for years. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared during the, during the exile. Later to be found by an archaeologist before World War II. 
right before the worst unboxing video ever. Always read the instructions. Symbol, that curtain, heavy curtain, symbolizing you can't come close to God. The only other high priest has ever seen the holy place. And that once a year carrying the blood of the sacrifice. And now it's ripped open for all to see. Meanwhile, there's earthquakes. Rocks are being split. The righteous dead raised. Not the grateful dead. That's a different group. Righteous dead. I mean, that's something he just skims right over here. And they go through town saying hi. Oh, who's that? Oh, that was my old grandfather. He loved God. Wait a minute. He'd been dead 20 years. Bizarre, bizarre. These things don't happen when people die. But it happened when Jesus died. And all these things are happening, and it see, and the view shifts back to a centurion at the foot of the cross, the guy who's in charge of this. He sees this, and he makes the declaration for us. Sees what took place, and it is the Roman soldier. Surely this was the Son of God. The Jews didn't recognize him when he was born. The people who even who saw him working and didn't understand what he was doing. They followed him around, still didn't get it. And then finally, at his death, when they've rejected him, it is a Roman who doesn't have all that history, who recognizes what has been happening in front of him. Jesus offered himself for us, the innocent for the guilty. See, we have a problem. That problem is sin. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And in Christ, it is finally solved. See, God has justice and mercy. And those two attributes of God are usually at loggerheads with each other. How can you love justice and mercy at the same time? If you have mercy, there's no justice. If you have love justice, you can't have mercy. The sinner's got to pay. The innocent one submitted himself willingly. Gave himself, suffering the wrath of God, dying, which was the punishment for sin. So God's justice is satisfied allowing him to have mercy upon the sinner. Jesus, this king, did not come down here to earth to rule. He came to be our sacrifice. Didn't start a political party. He ran around with a tax collector and a bunch of fishermen. The Lord of all came to earth for the purpose of serving. And in him, God fulfills his promises, even the oldest one he made to man. Satan has struck the heel of the Son of Man, and at the same time, Jesus crushed him in an act of sacrificial victory. It looked like a loss. But the earth shakes. And in the Bible, when the earth is shaking, friends, that is God's power being poured out. Something's happening. Forgiveness has come to earth. 
the Messiah has completed his mission. The sinner is forgiven. In Matthew, we see God keeping his promise of the Messiah. It's not a promise that the people believed because of their understanding that Jesus didn't, he didn't come to solve an earthly government, to solve our economic ills. He promised that, God, that the God's people would be restored to him, both the people that, God had known, that had known God for years and the people who didn't. That the distance that is created by our sin would be erased. Friends, Jesus came to deal with our sin. Even today, people get all sorts of ideas what Jesus was here for. And it's kind of amazing to listen to people talk about Jesus when they don't really know Jesus. It's really funny because everything they like, Jesus likes. It's just amazing. Oh, Jesus is this. Oh, really? I find it very curious that you know, Jesus has a spot on a modern 21st century American political compass. No, he didn't come for any of that. And Matthew didn't write this just so we'd be enlightened. Anytime in the Bible we are given facts, anytime in the Bible it tells us something, there is something for us to do with it. We take the knowledge that we have gained and we put it to work. And if we are listening to Matthew, we will receive this promised Messiah. We will understand who he is. Not just making assumptions about the Messiah we want, not just seeing who it is that God sent and what he did. You see, our problem isn't that we don't have enough money. Our problem isn't that the leaders are the wrong people. Our problem is our sin that separates us from God. And God, all throughout history, was working to bring it back, to forgive us. And Matthew points us at him and says, this Jewish Messiah is for everybody. To repent of our sin, to receive Christ, to look at the things wrong that we've done and say, that's not how I'm going to live my life anymore. I'm going to follow God. It's not that I'm going to be perfect, it's that I'm going to be his. And we get to look forward and to prepare ourselves for an eternity with God because Matthew was telling us it's not just the here and now. There's more to it. Friends, we've got a destiny. In the meantime, we've got work to do. We're trying to become like him. The lifetime job. Matthew tells us of our king. Let us serve him. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, you are great. You are holy. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to be with us, to serve us upon the cross, to give us hope through the empty tomb. Father, may we believe, may we follow, may we become like you as we look forward to the rewards that you have for your people. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.